Thanks very much, Chris, and welcome everyone this morning to Bethany. It's a joy to have you with us, especially uh, welcoming you university students who are here. Uh, I was a university student here in Seattle at Seattle Pacific University years ago uh, and attended Bethany, sat in the back row always, so back row especially. <laughs> welcome. Glad you're here. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for really for the privilege of gathering within these walls, listening for your voice this morning, inviting your Holy Spirit to speak to each of us individually, but also as a community, Father. We're mindful that we have an invitation from you to be people of hope and generosity in our world, and I pray that you would equip us toward that end even this morning as we listen. So we listen for your voice now. Give us ears to hear, hearts to respond. We'll thank you for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Good. Welcome, everybody. And uh, particularly this morning, because it is kind of college welcome weekend here, I want to begin by telling you one thing about me uh, with respect to college. Some of you know this, many don't. I was a music major when I was in college. Are there any others in the room, music majors? There's never many. There's one in the back whistling. Good. <laughs> Love that. The reason I was a music major goes all the way back to my experience in uh, fourth grade when I was nine years old. Uh, there was this lady, kind of this itinerant music teacher. She'd go to every elementary school. And in fourth grade, everybody had to take a test. You had to take the test. And it was a music test. There was a rhythm test and a pitch test. And uh, then if you, like, passed the test, you could join the orchestra. Well, I took the test, and then uh, the teacher would meet with the student, with the parents, uh, and debrief the test. I think those days are gone, but I don't know. But that's the way it was then. And uh, the, so I'll never forget, it was the first time I heard this in my life. Uh, the music teacher said, uh, Mr. and Mr., uh, Mr. Mrs. Dahlstrom, your son has a gift. And then she said that I aced both tests, pitch and rhythm. I got perfect scores on the test. So I jumped on, got an orchestra. Uh, my mom wanted me to play the clarinet. I was a rebel. I played the drums. Uh, still do, but I ended up being a music major later on in college, a composition major, and it goes back to that. Someone saying to me, you have a gift. You have something to give, uh, and that's what we define a gift as here at the outset. A gift is a, maybe a talent that you have uh, that brings you great joy and that others affirm. So when we're talking about gifts. We're talking about a talent or aptitude that you have that brings you joy and that others affirm. And that last one's very important. Some of us in the room have talents that we enjoy, but others don't affirm. <laughs> Not your gift, just so you know. <laughs> others have to affirm it as well. That's part of the deal. So um, uh, anyways, that, that was my thing. And, and the premise of the Christian life, actually, is related to that story in this sense. Second Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12 says... All God's children have gifts. Everybody has gifts. So there isn't a person in the room who isn't uniquely created to be an expression of the resurrection life of Jesus. Every one of us have gifts. And finding those gifts, developing those gifts, using those gifts is what disciples do. And so we've been in this series now. This is the fourth week of a four-week series. What do disciples do? They gather, just like we're doing right now. They grow as we saw, committing together to community and intentionally to small community where there's a bit more accountability and sharing and authenticity, and, 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 they, and they go. They use, their, they use their gifts in service of others. On the front of your bulletin, you see the logo for this series that's ending today, and in the middle, what ties all of it together is this. 
we're able to be disciples because we've received freely and based on that which we've received, our invitation is now to live generously. Receive freely, live generously, and that's our topic this morning. What ties it all together? What do disciples do? They freely receive and freely give. We want to look at those things this morning. Now, we live in a world where the predominant paradigm is scarcity, and that leads to kind of fear and hoarding and ultimately isolation. And so what we, what we find in Scripture over and over again is a recurring pattern. And the recurring pattern was articulated as Chris and Alice read together so well, uh, Christ, like three things. Christ became poor so that we might become rich, and we're rich in order that we might give. Christ became poor, so we might become rich in order that we might give. It's that pattern that we're looking at this morning. It's in your bulletin as an outline if you want to follow along. But we begin here, Christ became poor. It says it in the text, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. And the connection between Christ's poverty and our wealth, very important. It's super important that we understand this. At the most fundamental level, the reality of the world in which we live is this. Um, uh, life that we receive often comes at the expense of a life given by another. That's just the way it is. We'll, we'll leave here this morning, and some of us who aren't vegans are going to go and eat some, some protein of some sort. We're going to have a pork roast, or we're going to have a steak, or what a bacon, whatever it is that we're going to have, right? And here's the thing. One of the reasons that we pray the way that we do is because we're acknowledging, actually, that though we're continuing to live, another has given their life, Right? Uh, particularly Native American culture in our region, uh, had, had this kind of ethos. If a salmon was caught, it was going to be food for the tribe. Uh, before the salmon was killed, there was a, a word of gratitude offered to the salmon for giving his life so that we could enjoy. And so there's kind of this principle here that uh, when I'm receiving, often what I'm receiving is the life of another in order that I might uh, continue to live. And it's good to give thanks then because giving thanks honors that life. But the entire cycle here, uh, hear me, this is a cycle of winning and losing, right? Like I win, the salmon loses. And, and, and that goes on for a long time in life. But the sad news as well in a fallen world is that everyone loses eventually. And so though I win today probably at lunchtime and I have some salmon, the day comes when I lose. And when I lose, somebody eats me. Robin Williams said in Dead Poets Society, all has become what? Food for worms, right? And so the, the, the day comes when I'm not receiving life anymore, but my life is giving life for another. Now, the result of all, that kind of that cycle here is, whoa, it's a world of winners and losers. So, man, be careful. I got to what? Win. And, and Hebrews 2.15 says, that creates for all in the room slavery. In other words... Fear of death, Hebrews 2.15, explicitly in the Bible, leads to a sense of slavery. Now, what does this mean? Well, it simply means this. If I'm afraid of losing, I cling. I, I, I hang on. If I'm afraid of losing my money, then I give less and keep more. If I'm afraid of losing my time, then I become very guarded with my time. I won't let anybody into my life. I'm, I, and I, like, I'm totally closed off to the opportunity of uh, kind of intrusions and divine disruptions. If I'm afraid of rejection, I seek to please people, and I allow other people to shape me. If I'm afraid of dying, I become risk-averse, and I'm afraid to leave the house even, you know, because something bad might happen. Uh, and, 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 and so there's this whole mindset attending uh, the fear of loss 
that creates kind of small life. I, I remain silent when I should speak. I stay home when I should go. I close my door when I should open it in hospitality. I conform when I should protest. And all of that is rooted in what? Self-protection. Does this make sense? Like, I want to keep what I have. So, the point is, I'm keeping in order to not lose. And I just, this is like fundamental this morning is this. If your goal in life is just to keep your stuff, that's pathetic. Can I just say it that boldly? Like if your goal is, hey, I want to keep my health, I want to keep my family intact, you know, all I want is a, you know, a quote-unquote good life, and then I'm going to build a fence around my good life, I'm going to ensure my good life, I'm going to have contingency plans for my good life, I'm going to have you know, doctors lined up for everything, and, and I'm going to live carefully, and I'm, going to, I'm just going to enjoy my life. Listen, that's not the life to which you're invited in Christ at all, and by the way, Jesus said something crazy, he who seeks to save his life will what? Lose it. You want to you like, save everything? Here's what will happen. Your world will shrink and shrink and shrink and shrink and shrink, and your name in the end will be Ebenezer Scrooge, right? So you're not called to that. You're called to something different. But how do we escape this cycle? Because the fact is, the salmon lost, and I could lose. How do we get out of that cycle? Well, this is where the gospel becomes incredibly relevant to us and makes a radical turn from all conventional wisdom. Because Philippians 2 says this. Christ is our example, and what did Christ do? It says in Philippians 2, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ, Christ emptied himself. Though he had, as right, equality with God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to. In other words, he didn't live tiny, he didn't hold on, it says he emptied himself. So he, he emptied himself, became a man, not just a man, a servant, not just a servant, a slave, not just a slave, a slave completely obedient, and not just completely obedient, obedient to the point of what? Death on a cross. In other words, it doesn't get any lower than that. Christ emptied himself. And, 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 and it was pre precisely because he emptied himself that something kind of very profound happened. Now remember, Jesus is saying here in Philippians 2, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ. What did Christ do? Emptied himself. Therefore, what are you invited to do? What are you invited to do? Empty yourself. And then you're like this. I don't want to be the salmon. Why would I empty myself? Like, I know how that story ends. <laughs> no, you don't know how that story ends. Here's how that story ends. Philippians 2 again. Therefore, on the basis of emptying, therefore what? God highly exalted him. So Jesus was here, he emptied himself, and, and then this is what we read, because he emptied himself, because he emptied himself, in other words, therefore, on the basis of emptying, God lifted him up and gave him what? The name that is above all names. This is incredible to me. It's kind of the core of the gospel. In other words, when Jesus freely relinquishes his life, it's not that he gets his life back, it's that he gets his life back transformed better than it was before. Is that amazing? This becomes a little bit uh, illustrated for us in, this, in the miracle where Jesus turned water into wine. Do you remember that story? John chapter 2, there's water, and, and then what do you do? Well, you pour, you like, Jesus has the capacity to, like, when it's poured out, it, what? It becomes, it's transformed from water to wine. So, okay, this is your life, 
I'm thirsty, just a minute. <laughs> and now you can pour it out, it's water. But the thing is, if you, this is the gospel. If you pour it out, it's not just that you get it back as water, it's that you get it back as what? Anybody in the room? Wine, thank you. Yeah, you get it back as wine. And, and so God is able to, like, you gave up your life, and what do you receive in return? Not life, resurrection life. You poured yourself out, you became empty. What did you receive in return? Not life, abundant life. Abundant life, resurrection life, fullness, partakers of the divine nature, blessed with every spiritual blessing. All of it yours, why? Because you emptied yourself. And it was hang on, you hang on to your water, what do you get? Water. Pour out your water, and what do you get in your, in your cup? Wine. And if you're an, unless you're an alcoholic in the room, wine is better than water, right? Does that make sense? And so, so the point would be, live generously because God is in the business of transforming your generosity so that when you give, you're empowered to give more and more and more and more and more. This is the life for which you're created. <laughs> so resurrection life... It's what God wants to give us, but cannot give it to us unless we pour out our cups. In this economy of the broken world, the paradigm is, look, hang on to what you have because it's all you have. In the economy of God, exactly the opposite. You seek to save your life, what? You lose it. You lose your life for my sake, you find the life for which you're created. Give and it will be given to you. But again, Jesus says, what do he say? Give and it will be given to you. And then this is Jesus' response. Press down. Shaken together, and notice what God gives back is more than what you gave. Always, always, always. So the gospel enables us to escape kind of the predominant scarcity mentality in our culture and opt for an abundance mentality instead. And you see this all through the Bible, but you see it in church history as well. You see the second century Christians uh, offering hospice care to people die of the plague knowing that if I go in and I offer hospice, I may die. And some did die. <laughs> but they gave freely, and they found the life for which they're created. This is a, there's a group of people, I was, like I just finished a book about this obscure plateau in France where uh, all the little village conspired together uh, to shelter Jews during World War II. Over 3,000 children hidden in barns and basements and attics and all this stuff. Uh, and, and, and some of them lost their lives in sheltering the lives of others. And they're, and they're, and they're kind of sharing their food uh, that is already scarce so they can s uh, sustain the lives of these children. It's really incredible to me. And what it does is it creates this entirely new paradigm that makes the gospel not only powerful but remarkably relevant. And the reason that this is relevant is because we live in a world uh, where there's not only a scarcity mentality, like, uh, like if I... If I uh, win, it's because somebody else lost, and so I'm hanging on. We live in a scarcity mentality, but we also live in a culture increasingly isolated, right? And so though we seem in our, in, in our Seattle culture to be winners right now with, you know, property values going up and, you know, wealth coming in and, you know, Amazon and Boeing and Microsoft and ka-ching, you know, it's all there. Wow, you know, prosperous. Also, uh, third in the country... Uh, in living alone. Did you know that? New York, San Francisco, third, Seattle. More people living alone in Seattle than, any, than everywhere other than two other places. Like we're isolated people. And watch this. Isolation uh, is not such a good thing. It leads to a scarcity mentality. It leads to uh, kind of closing your fist. It leads to narcissism. 
and narcissism increasingly defines our entire Western developed world. Are we wealthy? Absolutely. Immense wealth. And in our wealth, we have the opportunity now uh, to kind of customize our lives exactly how we want our lives to be lived. We don't need to be generous because we have our own isolated consumerism that is the lot of each of us. For, just to give you one quick example, when I was a kid in the 60s, one TV in the house, three channels, and, and so uh, sometimes, uh, like intense debates, what to watch. Uh, I remember, that, you know, it was, it, where I grew up, it was either the Raiders or 49ers, and so one Sunday, the Raiders were on TV in the afternoon. There was a movie on TV in the afternoon as well. And my sister and my mom wanted to watch this stupid movie. I don't remember the name of it. And I wanted to watch football. And, my, and so my, here's my dad and I and my, and my mom and my sister. And it's two to two. And there's this kind of thing. And my dad was never kind of the, oh, I'm the boss kind of a guy. And I don't even remember what happened. But this is all I remember. We had to work it out. We had to work it out somehow. And we did work it out. And today, hello, I don't work anything out. Like I have slingshot on my iPad and I can go into my bedroom and watch what I want when I want at any time, right? And so that just feeds kind of this sense of, hey, like I can customize my consumerism to meet exactly my needs and no one else's. Uh, and then in so doing, I'm trying to what? Save my life, right? My shows, my timetable, my money, my choices, mine, wrong. It's not the gospel. Your life will get smaller and smaller. Entirely new paradigm. He who seeks to save his life will what? Lose it. He who loses his life will find it. Water to wine. And, 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 and so God is saying to us here, in answer to the question, how can we escape the cycle of clinging to our lives, clinging to our possessions, clinging to our reputations, and live boldly and generously instead? How can we do that? Uh, we can do that because uh, Christ became poor so that we can become rich, which leads me to the second point. We must embrace the reality that we are rich. That's the second thing. First thing, Christ became poor. Why? He became poor so that we can become rich. Second Corinthians 8, 9 says explicitly that, Christ's poverty resulted in our riches. So that what you see as a major thread throughout the whole Bible is this. God is giving and giving and giving and giving. And the reason that God is able to give to us is because of the cross. In other words, it says in uh, uh, Romans chapter 2, hey, look at the gifts that God has given and understand that it's God's kindness poured out on humanity intended to lead you to what? Repentance, like a change. In other words, God is good. Now, this, this is uh, somewhat mysterious to some of us in the room because if you grew up uh, saturated with the doctrine of total depravity and God's anger, then you're like this. Wait a minute, is God good? I thought I was hanging over hell by a thread and God was mad and ready to cut the string, right? Like, what, is God really, you know, happy? Yes. How do I know that? First uh, John chapter 2, verse 1 and 2 says this. Look, uh, Christ, we're told there, Christ became propitiation for our sins. And a simple word, propitiation, this is all it means. Christ became the satisfaction for God's anger. Satisfaction. In other words, all of God's anger, whatever it is, for whyever it is and however it is, all of that anger was absorbed by who? Christ. So God's not mad anymore because Christ is the propitiation for our sins. And listen, 1 John 2, not our sins only, but what? The sins of the whole world. God's not mad. So, so 
How, where do we see the goodness of God? Oh, you know, uh, the water you drank this morning, the, like the air you're breathing right now, the fact that you're alive, goodness of God. Education, shelter, babies crying, goodness of God. And I mean that, goodness of God. It's all, it's all God's gifts. They're all God's gifts. And so, like, we're the recipients of tremendous gifts because God is able to be generous to us based on the work of Christ on the cross. He became poor so that we might become rich. God is enabled to give us everything based on the work of Christ. And what has God given us? Uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, all things pertaining to God, uh, life and godliness, everything you need to live life. Uh, uh, 2 Peter 1, you're a partaker of the divine nature. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3, you're blessed with every spiritual blessing. John 1.16, you've received of God's abundance, grace after grace after grace. Each one given a, a, a gift, 1 Corinthians 12, the manifestation of the Spirit. And then God is giving to everyone everything that sustains life. Read Psalm 104. The seasons, the snow, the rain, the water, the hydration cycle, the wildlife, the flora, the fauna, all of it. Gifts from God intended to lead to repentance and gratitude, according to Romans chapter 1. So all of us are the recipients of massive gifts and, 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 and we're rich. But then we have to ask a couple of questions. If we're rich, why don't we feel rich? <laughs> There's a couple of reasons. Number one, I'm convinced that we're not paying attention to what God is already giving us. In other words, Matthew chapter 13 is where Jesus says this. My, and I'm paraphrasing, but here's Jesus. My complaint with religious people, they have eyes, but they what? Don't see. In other words, there's gifts all around us every day. Profound gifts, we don't see them. Why? Well, uh, many of us in the room, in our, in our own kind of fallen nature, it's easy to focus on what we don't have rather than what we have. That's the first problem. Second problem, many of us in our fallen nature, it's easy uh, for us to be kind of covered in shame and guilt rather than receiving God's forgiveness, as we'll do in this cup here in a few minutes at the Lord's table. So shame, forgiveness, focusing on what we don't have, those are kind of often default for many of us in the room. Kind of how do we move then? Well, we have to move into this posture of gratitude by, by praying that God would give us, watch this, eyes to see. Eyes to see. See with gratitude. Look, look what God has given you. Look how rich you are. And we begin with kind of the very mundane and begin to practice gratitude for our food, for our clean water, uh, for uh, the friends we have, for the measure of health we have, for education, for, for whatever measure of you know, financial wealth we have, we, be, we have to practice gratitude. We're called to gratitude, right? In everything give thanks, First Thessalonians chapter 5. So, so I need eyes to see, and we're going to practice gratitude. I'll give you one illustration of this from my own life that occurred in kind of an exact moment about a year and a half ago. And the, uh, the exact moment happened on the Ship Canal Bridge on Interstate 5 that changed my view of traffic in the city of Seattle. Now, some of you know, if, you if you've lived here a while, traffic's worse than it used to be. And uh, many of you know, if you travel Interstate 5 going south into downtown, this is one of the great mysteries in the universe. How is it that people are always going downtown at any time of the day or night so that this particular little stretch of freeway is always, uh, like, you just never know, but usually, uh, those lights will be on, on the on-ramp, saying, you're not that important, there's people already there, kind of wait your turn, you know, and then you get on, and then you're just parking. And this was kind of super, this was super annoying 
for a long time for me, like as a type A person. I want to get where I'm going. This is a means to an end. I hate this. And on this particular day, it was that way. Long line to get on. Sometimes that red light lasts longer than other times, I think. I don't know it, but it feels like it lasts longer. And then you're waiting, 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 and you get on, and you're just parked. You're just parked, and you're going two, three miles an hour. You're moving, and you go, oh, man, what is this about? And then I'm on this, I'm on the Ship Canal Bridge, and I had a kind of a flashback. I graduated from college in 1979, and I had this little Mustang, and I remember all my possessions are back in my car, and I'm driving south to California. I've got a job in California. And I did not want to leave Seattle. Loved it here. Loved, I had friends here and absolutely loved the geography, loved the city. And I, and I was leaving. And I didn't want to leave. And now I'm sitting on the Ship Canal Bridge and I remember that moment. And I was like, I'm here. I'm here. This is amazing. I'm in the city I love. With people I love. Doing what I love. And I'll tell you what, that lens, that's what I think now every time I'm on the Ship Canal Bridge. Every time. And I go, oh, sailboats, man. Fantastic. Space Needle, still there. Good news. <laughs> Olympic Mountains, glorious. And I pray for my city. I just pray. And here's the deal. Slow traffic, more prayer. More gratitude. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like this lens of I'm wealthy changes everything. Jesus says, how do you have eyes that you don't see? The first step in living generously is actively seeing the riches that God has given you. And the second step is giving thanks. Because Romans 1, the complaint that Paul offers there is though God is revealing himself to us through all of creation, we see it, but we don't give thanks. And this, this, this gratitude for the changing colors, for the coming rains, for the snow, for the beauty, for the food we eat, for the church community that we enjoy, for the friends we have, for the education we have, for the health we have, for the shelter that we have from the storms. All of this, this is, these are gifts given from God. And, 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 and so when our paradigm changes, watch this, we just become people who are continually kind of like wide-eyed little children receiving gifts from God. And this is the way you're invited to live. It's precisely why Jesus said, unless you become like a little child, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Because what do little children do? They always just receive gifts. They simply, simply receive. Never when my kids were little did they open a present at Christmas and feel guilty because I spent more than them, ever. It never happened. <laughs> They're just experts at receiving and enjoying. And here's Jesus, be that. Why? Because God is a good God giving good gifts to all of us. Is the world fallen? Yes. Are our bodies fallen? Yes. Do we have problems? Yes. And in the midst of it, countless gifts. Pay attention, give thanks. Amen? This is hugely important for our own well-being and to help us live into the story that God is creating in the world. I was talking with somebody recently and our conversation got uh, quite intellectual about the faith. Uh, and so, talking about apologetics, and that led to evidence of the resurrection, and that led to the trustworthiness of the manuscripts of the Bible, and that led to archaeology, and that led to epistemology and postmodernity, which led to Nietzsche, which led to Camus, which led to existentialism. And I finally pulled off, I pulled a car over to the side of the road. And I said, listen, man, you want to talk this way? I'll talk this way all day. 
It's fun to me. It's like a chess game. And I'll win, by the way, I think. Because <laughs> there's plenty of evidence. There's plenty of evidence. But I said, you need to know, my friend, this isn't why I believe. What gets me up in the morning is this. I feel like every day I wake up, it's Christmas. Every day. And God's a good father, and there's good gifts all around me, and I'm opening them. Like, wide-eyed. It doesn't matter if I'm on a hike, or eating crisp bacon, or enjoying good coffee, or a conversation with my friend Eric here who leads worship. There are gifts plenty to go around. Let's just receive. Let's just start there. Because when we begin to have that paradigm, do you know what? The, the sense that we have any kind of poverty at all just evaporates. And, and we, we see ourselves as wealthy. Oh, yeah, this is a luxury of privilege. No, it's not. Read Dietrich Bonhoeffer's biography. Every day was Christmas for him in a prison cell, not knowing, not knowing he's going to live or die. Or Amy Carmichael's biography with with, you know, racked with injuries in, the, in her back and living in India. Look, you know, it's, the point is you have a perfect life. The point is, in the midst of this fallen world, gifts are raining down. Pay attention. That's what God is saying here. So that's a thing. You have gifts, see them, receive them, give thanks. And then finally, what's all this for? In order that you might bless the world. In other words, that's the text that Chris read at the beginning. Freely you've received What? Freely give. Once you begin to believe that you've received freely, the thing that you begin to want to do is become generous. Why? Because this is John 7. Remember Jesus said in John 7, if anybody's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Thirsty? Thirsty for what? Oh, you know, meaning, forgiveness, deliverance from shame, deliverance from addiction. Uh, thirsty for a just world, thirsty to see a world where we're beyond political categories, where racism is done with, and it's in the history, it's in the past. Yeah, you're thirsty. Are you thirsty? Here's Jesus. Come to me and drink. And if you're thirsty, I'll give you uh, 800 milliliters. I'll get you by. Oh, no. Here's Jesus. Come to me and drink, and from your belly will burst forth rivers of living water. You're thirsty for 800 milliliters. I'll turn you into a river. And then what you need to do is not put a dam on that river. A dam of fear, a dam of it's mine, a dam of narcissism, a dam of shame. So you step out of God's story preemptively, pulling yourself out of the game when God wants you in the game because you don't think you're worthy. Look, don't put a dam up when God wants you to be a river. The river is who you are. So everything that God gives you, pour it out, pour it out, pour it out in hospitality. Pour it out financially. Pour it out in time. Make room for disruption in your life. Make room for interruptions. Why? Because your generosity changes the world. That's the deal. One of the great examples of generosity in the Bible that's a picture of, of, of hospitality is in Genesis chapter 18. And this is where Abraham, it says, is sitting in the heat of the day. It's kind of the original siesta, actually. It's hot. And he's sitting in the heat of the day. And three, it says three strangers come to visit him. Now, they're angels, whatever. We don't have time to deal with that, but there's three angels, and they come, and they want to be with him. And, and uh, so Abraham says, hey, I'd love it if you stay for lunch. We'd love to stay for lunch. So what does Abraham do? He goes to his wife. He says, don't you love this? 
grind the grain and make some bread. Like, it's not like run down to Safeway. It's grind the grain, and then if you make bread, you know, you know, all that stuff. Make the bread. And then here's Abraham. Well, I go kill an animal so that we can have some steak, too. How long does that take? Well, I don't know. It's not like this kind of fast food hospitality, is it? Like, here's three strangers, and Abraham's like this. What's mine is yours. And he doesn't know they're angels till later. What's mine is yours. Fine. Look, I just want to share with you. That's it. So this is the story. It's significant, actually. Because uh, the point is, many of us in our lives, in a scarcity mentality, have a feeling that we don't have any margins for disruption and that we don't have time, no time to serve. And then uh, uh, we don't serve in our community of faith. No time to give, no, res- no money to give. And we don't give anything at all because we don't feel like we can give well. Look, why are we called to be generous? Because if you hold on, what? You lose it. But when you begin to practice generosity with time, with money, with gifts then you enter into the life for which you're created. And we become then like little children. Every day's Christmas. And we're living generously. Um, some of us in the room, you'd be like this. I don't know my gifts. It's okay if you don't know your gifts. That's why we're here as a community. So that we can help each other discover our gifts and fan those gifts in the flame and use those gifts so that we can pour our lives out in service to one another, in service to our city, in service to our world, and become the people God had in mind when he made us. Hold on to your life, you lose it. Lose your life, you find the life for which you're created. Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful that you've called us not to a life of hoarding or narcissism, but in direct contrast to all that we see around us that's fear-based with winners and losers, You've called us to a life of abundance, believing that as we pour out our life, the life we receive back from you is even better than the life we gave. Would you give us the faith to believe that and the practical next step to take in these moments now as we meet you at your table? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. And now as we come to the Lord's table, I would just say that in coming to the table, we're coming to really the source of all generosity in the world. And the reason I say that is because on the night that Jesus was betrayed, after he'd taken the bread and given thanks, he broke it, and this is exactly what he said. He said, this is my body broken for you. It's not broken for some cosmic philosophical reason. It's broken for you. I'm giving all that I am to you in order that you might become all that God had in mind when God made you. I'm pouring my life out in order that you might pour your life out. But it all begins, what? With receiving. Take, eat. This is my life. It's for you. It's a gift. You don't have to earn it. You simply have to, what? Receive. Then, having distributed the bread, Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant. My blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sin. Some of us are stuck in a cycle where our hand is closed because we're living with shame. And this word from Jesus is this, no matter how you failed, and you have failed, generosity is your capacity.
because you're forgiven. Receive forgiveness. Receive strength. Receive satisfaction. Be filled in order that you might be poured out. Uh, This morning, as the elements are distributed, I will encourage you to take uh, the bread individually, hold the cup, we'll receive the cup together, signifying our unity in Christ. And then I'll come through with some gluten-free bread as well, uh, making that available to those who need it. Let's worship together.
Show me 
Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for a life poured out. Grateful for the testimony that in your emptying of yourself, you were filled again. Filled again in order to fill us again. And you have filled us, Lord Jesus, in order that we might be poured out. So we, in this moment of gratitude as one body, receive all that you are. Asking that in the fullness of what you have given, we would be full givers ourselves. We receive with gratitude. Let's drink together. By way of practical next steps that you can take, even this morning, one of the ways to be generous is to be generous in service. And uh, so as our ministries here ramp up in the fall, there's plenty of opportunity to serve in children's ministry, to serve on our welcome team, to serve on our coffee team, to be, and coffee's very important, by the way. It's a gift from God. To serve on our um, uh, uh, small group ministry by being a group facilitator. If you're interested in any of those ways of living generously, talk to the folks at the information table. They'd love to help you use your gifts to bless others in our world. And tomorrow night, we talk about the generosity of crossing social divides as uh, Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil comes and talks to us about the next step in the race conversation that's happening all across the country. Our desire at Bethany is to be part of the solution, not part of the problem and to lead the way in being among the first to cross social divides. I hope you'll join us tomorrow night for that important conversation. And then I leave you with this word from Isaiah 55. Listen, everyone who's thirsty, come to the waters. And you have no money, come. Buy and eat. Buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Why would you ever spend money for what isn't bread and squander your wages for what doesn't satisfy? Listen to me carefully. Eat what is good. Delight yourself in God's abundance. May you go out with that message, inviting our world into the waters of God's generosity, the wine of Christ's life, the milk of the Holy Spirit's comfort. And may you delight in abundance in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. And then thanks so much for being here. Next week, we begin a new series, Sustainable Faith. I look forward to seeing you then. You're dismissed.